It's a trade-off between, you know, being open and honest about support and having criticism from customers. Customer feedback, at least for me, is kind of like the final stage of continuous delivery of, of DevOps. That is the part that we never talk about when we talk about continuous delivery. We have a public Slack, and there's, you know, the fanboys. They're kind of defending us against those kind of criticisms. The more shocking and kind of aggressive your tweet is, the more likely you are to get a response quicker. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harba, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Okay, so what is the worst part about being acquired? I would say the worst part about being acquired is there's always a tremendous amount of due diligence. And oftentimes there's like an office move and new computers and new policies and new HR departments. And all of that feels like a headache versus just building really fun software. I would say the worst part is the balance between the due diligence process, talking with lawyers and tax consultants, and then at the same time with your team, and they naturally don't know everything, so you have to kind of balance that out. You want to give them as much information as you can, at the same time, not stress them out with the future that's unknown to them. And that's really, that stressed me out as a founder very much for a long time during the acquisition phase. Well, now, now would be a great time for our guests to introduce themselves. We're um, podcasting from Microsoft Build, Microsoft's developer conference, and we have two people who've been acquired. Yeah. Hey, I'm Thomas. I'm Thomas Domke. I'm from Germany. I'm the co-founder of Hockey App. I used to be the CEO of Hockey App. As part of the acquisition, I moved from um, Stuttgart, Germany to Seattle. And I'm now the GPM at Microsoft for Mobile Center, and I work with um, Keith. Hi, and I'm Keith Ballinger. I was the VP of product at Xamarin, which was acquired last year. I luckily got to stay in San Francisco. Me and Thomas got together after the acquisition, and we built Mobile Center with a bunch of other cool people. I don't know why you say luckily. <laughs> Seattle is so much nicer than San Francisco. I, uh, we're going to have to agree <laughs> to disagree <laughs> on the Seattle versus San Francisco thing. It's so awesome that Build is this year in Seattle. Because it's a 10-minute drive for me. It's, it's just nice at a conference to go home at night. <laughs> so you prefer Seattle to San Francisco? Um, I mean, I guess it depends on your life situation. Like, I have family. And so if you have wife and kids, I, I prefer Seattle uh, or Bellevue or the east, the east side, really, of, of, of the Seattle metropolitan area over San Francisco. Yeah, I just love cities. <laughs> I, was, I was raised in a small town. And so then once I was an adult, I've always lived in cities. I've lived in, you know downtown LA and downtown Boston. I lived in Singapore for a while. So downtown San Francisco is where I live now is like perfect for me. I'm literally a block from the Twitter building, which is where our, our offices are as well. Are you in that shiny NEMA building? Uh, right next to the NEMA building. I don't yeah, live right. in the NEMA building. I'm actually on the other side in like 8th and Mission. So right. I'm very familiar with that building because I have my own startup and we sat with Yammer for six months. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice, like you were, uh, you early on, like kind of like used them to kind of help you figure out the, what kind of product you were going to build. And just um, at the time, the accelerator I was in got a deal where we all got desk space at Yammer. Oh, eventually, nice. my, eventually uh, this ended, but I yeah. took full advantage of it while I was the, there. Um, there's a startup in San Francisco called Lever that does yeah. um, mm -hmm. HR recruiting, and they started by embedding themselves with the Twitter uh, people and just watching how Twitter did recruiting, mm. oh. and they did it like for six months. And that's how they ended up building Lever. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said of um, 
being with your actual customers. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Mm. I would love, in fact, if Microsoft, um, you know, I've, no one's ever explicitly told me this, this wouldn't be allowed, but I would love if we had a policy, actually, if we could invite in startups to coexist with us. Heroku did this at the very start. They, they had a, a space in their office where, where their customers, who are generally very small, early-stage startups, would, would come in and they could you know, observe them in their natural habitats. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, like, I mean, that's fantastic, right? No. We've, we've talked a lot about at least maybe bringing in mobile developers for you know, longer than an hour. Like maybe, mm-hmm. hey, hang out with us for a half a day or three days or a week, and we just kind of want to watch you mm-hmm. um, without that sounding too creepy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but in fact, yeah, if anybody's listening to this, uh, shoot me an email and, you know, yeah. I'd love to have you come over and just watch you code for a while. So it, it, it's interesting. I, I'm starting a new company at the moment, and it's in the, it's in the dev tool space. And one of the sort of the, the plans that we have is to, to sort of consider it to be a sort of a VC-backed social club to a certain extent, hmm. so that we always have customers uh, or potential customers and sort of community around a lot in, in the early days as opposed to like not very much. So instead of like throwing it over a wall or announcing it, it's like, we want, you know, here's what I worked on today. What do you think of this? Well, it's, it's obviously stupid. And that's the kind of <laughs> feedback that I want to hear today, not, not three months time when we're, when we're fully in on it. Yeah, yeah like yeah. When, when we were starting our, uh, our product, like our, our, our early customers were literally the desk over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, well, <laughs> it was perfect for us because we could go bully them like, hey, why haven't you installed our SDK yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, they get then really great tech support, right? <laughs> like that's one of the things I like about uh, Intercom, which we use on Mobile Center, is we are constantly interacting with our customers at the moment of them hitting friction, mm-hmm. and I think that lets you, you know, connect with them in a way as if they're at the desk with you. It's really you're yeah. at their desk, and I just find that to be like such a high volume or like what's right. There's a lot of signal. Mm. Um, to that kind of interaction. How do you sustain using Intercom at such a high level of developers as you have at Xamarin? Because you yeah, have none of us sleep, which I think is the big deal. <laughs> uh, sleep is overrated. Yeah, yeah. So we just you know keep at it. So we don't use Intercom for the Xamarin platform product, I and mean, that's built into Visual Studio and Visual Studio for Mac. And there is no kind of Intercom usage in, in that space. But for Mobile Center, since it's like a website, it's a SaaS service, mm-hmm. we're able to just you know pop the blue button there. And have those conversations. Intercom must be must be something very special for Microsoft people because the this is the second podcast we've had today where where people have name dropped Intercom, and I don't think anyone has name dropped a single other SaaS product the whole day. Well, uh, you you name dropped LaunchDarkly, and thank LaunchDarkly, of course, LaunchDarkly yeah, is, is a very important startup that we always talk about. I think the reason Intercom gets name dropped is it's such a great way to talk to customers mm-hmm. that I just love it. Like I don't have any problems with Intercom. It's not like I'm using Intercom and I really wish I had a better solution mm-hmm. and I'm just putting up with it. You know, it's it's none of those things. That never happens. Like every product that I use I I hate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's the products or you Paul? I think it is the nature of software. There nothing nothing is ever right. And so if you've ever found a product that's like that's like fully right, then either you wrote it yourself for yourself. Or, or it's just kind of amazing, which I think Intercom must be in the must be in the latter camp. I, I met some customers at a lunch Tuesday, and I asked them for feedback, and they're like, "No, we just love it." And I was just like, "They're lying to you." No, I pushed them. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I it's, them. I, it's it's you, great. We we we, we love LaunchDarkly, but I'm I'm sure that your it. customers have something they hate, and, and so they're they're lying to you. I think the the thing with Intercom is that it's not getting in the way, mm-hmm. and especially you know we mentioned Microsoft mentioned it twice today. It's, you know, the classic Microsoft way is an MSDN forum or TechNet or the real classic 
high-scale customer support where you pay thousands of dollars per month, mm -hmm. right? And then the, the PMs and the developers have no direct contact with the customer. They're talking to a support engineer and then the support engineer talks to the customer. Intercom doesn't get in the way. It's in the product. We get directly to talk to the customer. So it moves us from this big company org chart into a startup culture. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think many Microsoft teams are looking for that solution and are name dropping it because it really enables them to directly engage with and, and, and get the feedback that they need to mm -hmm. improve the product. Well, yeah. how, how logistically, if you're getting you know people chatting with you all the time, how do you staff and manage yeah, that? That's a good question. We, and we, we struggle with that because, in fact, the downside, the one downside we have of Intercom now is that occasionally customers will complain to us that no one's replied to their chat yeah. Yeah. within the, the time frame that they expected. And because it feels like real-time chat, you expect an answer yeah. really quickly. But if someone's asking for something and, and just everybody's asleep, yeah. you yeah. know, and, and Intercom, I think, is, is addressing that. They're, they're creating tooling around giving people an idea of when the reply will come and those kinds of yeah. things. But it is a real struggle. Now, we have teams in South Korea, uh, Redmond, San Francisco, Denmark, and then a few other developers in like India Germany. and other places. So we have pretty good coverage around the globe. But as we scale up, and you still kind of hit pockets of where there's just no one awake yeah. who can yeah. answer this person's question right now. And that is the downside, but it's just the upside is so worth it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, you got to yeah. go with it, right? The problem, of course, is, is that when they've been waiting 10 minutes in Intercom, the next step is to go to Twitter. And yes. looking for support on Twitter is not nearly as pleasant uh, sounding. No. To, no, to we incentivize people to be really um, mean. I guess right, right, the right, only right. way if you if you ask a polite question on Twitter to whatever brand or company you have, yeah. you might get a response. Yeah. But if you say something about how you know terrible they are and how you're going to uninstall their thing or ask for a refund, like the more mm -hmm. uh, shocking and kind of aggressive your tweet is, mm -hmm. the more likely you are to get a response quicker. And so we've incentivized this. Even behavior. even a pleasant question sounds unpleasant due to the due to the forum that you ask it in. If someone is like standing up in your developer thing, is like saying, "Your attention, please. Your attention, please. Why can't we have this feature?" It it doesn't sound like a like a very pleasant feature request, like it would be if they send you a private note. Oh, I can't wait to I Absolutely. can't wait to get this. And when it's private, you can be more liberal in how you answer, right? Yeah. Like there are times when you're not doing a feature for some reason that has nothing to do with, you know, satisfying users. There's like a Tech internal tip. company politics issue or there's yeah. like a, you know, a, a partnership that you want to announce that you haven't announced yet. There's all kinds of things like that. Yeah. And you if it's one-on-one, -on -one, you can just say, "Listen, I, I can't do this because, you know, of x y and z," but you're not going to say that on Twitter. Mm. I, I would say, I would argue though that public also enables other people to respond to those customers, right? Like yes. if, like at Hockey App, we we always did our own support and we had a forum not not Intercom. And so it had a private mode and a public mode. And yeah. so it's, it, scales, it scales fairly well as long as you have the public op option because then people can help other people. And Xamarin had the Xamarin forum, same thing. Right? Yeah, so we had forums and we had two forums. We had the public forums and we had like MVP insider forums. Mm. And, you know, we tried to, anybody who was super active and was really into the product, we'd kind of bring into that insider forum where we could be more, you know, A, there would be other experts there. They were all kind of like, you know, they all want to have a great reputation with that community. And at the same time, you could have more authentic conversations versus mm -hmm. something that's very public. And, and we are seeing this in our, we have a public Slack for hockey app customers and our mobile center customers and test out customers are there too. And there's, you know, the fanboys, our, our private fanboys, yeah. and they're kind of defending us against those kind of criticism or just saying, hey, you know, have you seen that blog post? They announced it last week that that's coming next week. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like it's a, it's a trade-off 
between you know being being open and honest about support and and having criticism from from customers. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that we're we're talking about this because this is all about customer feedback, right? Yep. And customer feedback, at least for me, is kind of like the final stage of continuous delivery yep. of, of DevOps. It's like the whole point is to get more feedback more quickly. Yeah. And it's I don't. To my knowledge, I don't think I generally have seen people describing DevOps with Intercom as the final step. But in many ways, that's what you want. You want that, that, that really high fidelity communication because you're shipping all the time, yeah. right? And it's, it's fascinating to me that it's like, it's, that is the part that we never talk about when we talk about continuous delivery. Well, and it's not only the final stage, right? It's also the initial driver for many companies. Yes. Because you only start thinking about DevOps after you had a big outage Yes. Bad feedback, one-star yeah. ratings, right? That's kind of like driving you into a DevOps process. Yep. And you're right, it's closing the loop. If without feedback, you cannot have continuous delivery. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. just no point. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, I have a diagram of like just a continual circle. Yeah. And like yep. you're always somewhere in that circle. Right? Yep. Like you're always either getting feedback or shipping a feature and you just want to make these circles as tight exactly. as possible. And you, yeah, you want to go through that circle multiple times a day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. We were very, very early Intercom customers, like you know the private beta sort of thing. And we integrated a lot of like the customer communication that, that, that we did in the app because we needed that information filtered back into, into Intercom. So like a ton of fields of our user model only existed to get data into Intercom mm -hmm. so that we could give people better feedback and better and better customization. Yeah, no, I think that's something we've thought a lot about is how can we do those same kinds of things, mm -hmm. right, with Intercom. Yeah. But I think every developer must be thinking about this, right? We have a, there's a feature in Hockey App that you know, uh, which is feedback, right? Mm -hmm. And a beta user, it's, it's for beta users mostly, right? And then you want that feedback from, yeah. from your end user. You want to get it into your system. You want to see it, and you want to see it, you know, both in a qualitative way. You want to see what the, yeah. the words people wrote are, but you also want some kind of quantitative aspect to it, right? Like we do a lot of this at Microsoft with uh, MPS scores, where yeah. we'll ask mm -hmm. people after certain triggered events, you know, the whole zero to 10, would yeah, you recommend yeah, yeah, yeah. this? And I mean, I found, we did that at Xamarin too before we were acquired. That was easily like one of the best ways to kind of quantitatively measure how our customers were responding to new releases and things like that. That's interesting. So we do our NPS surveys, but we deliberately do it as an email because I don't want, to be, I don't want it to be triggered on a certain feature. I want it to be about the overall holistic experience with their product. At Xamarin, we always did it as an email survey as well. And at Microsoft, in general, we tend to focus on in the in-app experience mm -hmm. instead. And I think there's pros and cons to both points. I think they're both good. I think they're. Yeah. I was more. Uh, I, I think. I think anytime you ask a customer their opinion is good. I just wanted to hear more yeah. about the feedback you got when you were doing it in an app. But who wants more emails, though? Right. I do. <laughs> <laughs> you can also do it unobtrusively, right? So we, in Hockey App, when we ask for the NPS score, it's a little kind of toast at the bottom. Yeah, it's a footer, right? The footer yeah. expands a little bit, mm -hmm. like by 50 pixels or so. It comes up and says, hey, do we want to vote? If you don't want to vote, you literally stay in your experience because it's just the footer. It's a little bit higher than it yeah. usually mm -hmm. is. And yeah. that's really nice, right? Um, I think the, the thing I've seen that's different between email surveys and in-app experiences is email surveys will capture people who've churned out. Mm. And oh, then yeah, they'll yeah, tell yeah. you the, the really negative reason they churned out. Which mm. is what you want to know. Yes, you want to know those things, right? The in-app one is how do I take a someone who's either feeling okay all the way to fan and how do I amplify that, right? Mm -hmm. Which is two different things. And as a product owner, you have to decide which one you want, right? Do I want to go fix all the churn problems or do I want to take my fans and make them even bigger fans? Mm -hmm. And you 
you do have to kind of decide which of those two you're investing in and how you, you get that NPS data or which, even if you're doing both, which ones you're going to listen to are going to kind of dictate those investments, right? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a classic product owner's dilemma of install base versus uh, net new. Yeah. No. So the, the problem that I have with, with qualitative feedback like that, and it, this is, a, I, I think, a common pattern in sort of new companies or, or, or new divisions where, where if you're good, or like you, you have some sort of like natural talent at, at, at some particular aspect of the company, you'll be really late in developing that and sort of get, ma- making a department around it, making it sort of systematic. And I think that, that that's really true with, with let's say, using Intercom or, or getting qualitative feedback that you get so used to you know, having these great customer interactions where, where you answer their questions and you're really happy that you're, you're sort of slow to build out docs and community, you know, overall sort of community stuff because you're, re- you're really just enjoying this one-on-one interaction and enjoying the feedback that you get from that. That's kind of my, my one downside. I, I don't think it's, it's a downside with Intercom per se, but it's just like a, a company has to realize as they grow that, that you want to be more systematic about things. Well, the other danger there is that you go in the wrong direction, right? You get like five people feedback and they all tell you something. Mm-hmm. And then later, like a year later, you realize they gave you good feedback, but that's yeah. not where you want to grow the company. And you build a feature then for them that's not really helping you with your mission. Like, right, right, right. right. You, yeah, you definitely need to be like reaching out and talking to all the people who who have no sort of like no problems with your company. It's like, what are, you, what are you trying to achieve? Because you only hear from the people who are saying, this is a problem right now. Yeah. Well, this, yeah. this, this is why product management is hard. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's, it, this is the heart of the problem, right? right. Yeah, exactly. I would say that one thing I do see a lot of in Intercom is just messages of delight, right? We, we mm-hmm. do get a lot of high, oh my God, that worked, or you know, things like that. So I don't know how to react to those though, other than to say thank you. Like I don't know how to translate that into a bug fix or a new feature or whatever when mm-hmm. someone just gives you positive feedback. But I mean, that's like a general problem, I think, with any human relationship, mm-hmm. right? If someone tells you you're awesome, <laughs> it makes you feel good, but it's not like, <laughs> like you changed anything about the way you're behaving. Yeah. Well, we, we, we always say thanks, we'll, we'll, we'll lay it to the team and then post uh, a screenshot in, in Slack of like, you know, customer said this particular feature is great. You know, the team that built that feature Feel good about yourselves. Yeah, no, that's, and that's a good point. It, it is very motivating at the very yeah. least, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that now that we're into it, I'd love to hear. I mean, you you both are, were part of very successful startups. How are some of the ways that you took in user feedback when you were early, and, and used them to improve your product? Well, I would say I, I've 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 started a lot of unsuccessful startups. Um, <laughs> I joined Xamarin just to be clear. Um, hmm. I consulted with them in their their early days because I was part of the original team that built .NET and C Sharp at Microsoft, and then I officially joined as the VP of product. You know. Uh, a couple years into Xamarin's life cycle, just to just be clear. So, in terms of, I can tell you all the unsuccessful ways to start yeah. a startup. You need someone like Thomas or or Nat and Miguel to tell you how to be a successful founder. Well, <laughs> well the, so. the, the, the unsuccessful is interesting. What, what's yeah. what's the 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 biggest? Um, uh, not 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 the biggest failure, but the biggest uh, uh, negative pattern. By far, I think the thing that is is best at leading you to to failure is assuming you're right. Mm-hmm. And not being skeptical of your own decisions, and never doing the the kind of iterations and experiments and customer interviews that lead you to to that path. Are you and, sure you're right about that? I mean, I'm not sure I'm right about that. That's the problem, right? At this point, at this point, I'm skeptical of everything I know. You're I mean, basically like the X Files. Yes, you have to be. You have to question everything. I, right, right, I abs- right, right. Trust, trust I absolutely, no one. Absolutely, 
absolutely mm. believe that. So this, this is a huge challenge for me at the moment because I'm developing a new product. And you have these things that you believe about the world, but then you also want to question everything you believe about the world. And it ends up being like, you have to have some sort of conviction as a founder of the path that you want to go down. As a, as a VC-backed founder, mm -hmm. I think our ecosystem is designed for that. Because mm. what you have is the VC wants lots of people with conviction, and then they're, playing a, uh, they're making a, a spread of bets, yeah. where if each, each bet they're making should be 100% convicted on their belief. Probably not 100%. Well, you know, a, 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 to a very strong degree because mm -hmm. some of those will work, some of them won't. Yeah. But if you have, if you invest in a bunch of people who are very, you know, wiffly-waffly about their beliefs, you, you could easily see them all spin out and, and not get anywhere. Mm -hmm. But as a founder, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily help you. Well, right? as, as a founder, you need to validate your beliefs as, as cheaply as possible, generally. Yes. But you also need to have some beliefs where you say... You know, th this has been invalidated by the market. But the thing that we are going to do differently is tell the market how wrong they are about this. We're going to show them how amazing that this, this particular thing that we're going to build is. In a way, you said, you know, the biggest mistake is that you believe you were right. But then if you look at Xamarin, I'm, I'm sure Miguel and Nat thought that Mono is the right thing to do for native development, right? We certainly believe that Hockey App is the right thing for, I mean, we didn't call it DevOps. I don't think the term even existed when we started, but we build it for ourselves and we strongly believe that this is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And then you, you ask about customer feedback, right? The customer feedback kind of helped us to validate validate our hypotheses, but even more so, they became our biggest fan base and helped us mm -hmm. to grow mm -hmm. the product in a viral fashion, right? Like you said, you know, people saying in Intercom, you're awesome, that doesn't really help us. I would say that helped us a lot, mm -hmm. right? Because they say you're awesome and then they go to Cocoa, Cocoa Hats or the, what was it back then, the Android community meetup in, in, in Frankfurt mm -hmm. and they tell that the guys next yeah. to the table and you know what, they work, they are just the same kind of young developers, but they work at the German telecom or I don't know, you know, some bigger company and they bring that oh, I heard they're awesome, let's try them out with them back into the company. And so I think this is actually really key because the, at the start, the whole point of being a startup is that you're doing something new. And so when, when you're doing it for the first time, everyone is going to be like, that's obviously a fucking stupid idea. That's, that's what right? Paul told me. Yeah, exactly. And so you need to, to ignore a lot of those people who say it's stupid and listen for those couple of people who actually go, this is wow. And like, what is it about these people that makes them wow? How can we double down on the thing that made them wow? How can we find more of the people like them who think about what, what, what is wow? Yeah, so I think, I think you're on the right path. I think the revision to my statement that I would make is, it would be thinking you're right about mm -hmm. the solution. I think mm -hmm. the, the thing that you do right. have to have conviction on is what the problem is. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, if yeah. you if if you truly believe that you know it's really hard to get you know your app builds to beta testers, that's a problem. How you solve it, mm -hmm. you have to be open to. Right. I, th I think the other thing that you need conviction about is is how the world is going to change. So when we were starting CircleCI, one of the convictions was everything is moving to the cloud. And everyone did tell us at the start, everyone we tried to be customers, it's like, we're not taking our source code and, and giving it to a third-party service in the cloud. They but, still do, right? And they, we heard that at our session today, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they, 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 they were wrong. And we, we had this conviction that this is something that people are going to do. And we had evidence. We looked at Heroku. We looked at, at GitHub. We, we, we saw this is the way that the world is going. And so we had to continue in the face of all those people saying, you're wrong. And it turns out that, 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 that later, it was just we needed... The, those people relented when our name got big enough. <laughs> well, 
Okay, well, I mean, once, but, once we got big enough to, to you know, overcome their security concerns, it was, it was fine. But I do think there's like a danger mm-hmm. in, in this thinking that at least people have to be aware of, which is if I'm, a, if I'm 25 years old and I've just spent a couple years at Facebook or Google or wherever mm-hmm. and I'm going to go do a startup, you hear lots of success stories. You hear you talking about CircleCI. You hear Thomas. You hear Nat. You hear all these, these success stories. You don't hear from the 999 other people who were just as convicted but they were wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, you it's, could, it's a binary outcome. You could, you could be completely full of conviction and then march off a cliff. Right. So you need the mm. tools. You need the tools to get past that point. Oh yeah, ab- absolutely. I, I, I think, I think what I'm trying to say is, is, is that there's a certain amount of belief about the world that, that you need to stick with, and and for sure question it. Um, but like, try try to understand why why it is that that you are convinced of this. Try to dissuade yourself from it for sure, even if if the only purpose of that is is to become more convinced yourself. I believe that. Yeah, I mean, Thomas, you, did you build hockey app for yourself? Yes, we did. Yeah. Yeah. That I think is probably the best thing you can do. And we we were we were four founders. Two were indie developers having their own apps, mm-hmm. and then me and Stefan, we were contract developers for for media companies, right? So we had the two angles, right? The guys that had their own apps in the app store, and then the guys nice. that were creating apps for agencies and for for big media companies, and we built it because we had to solve a problem for us. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is the best non mistake you can make. Let me put a caveat of that, which I think that that's only true in B two B. You, you, you get people building yes. for themselves Agreed. in B2C and just just being so, so wrong. No, I, I believe that. Or even in B2B, you can get stuck in the trap of like, you think every dev shop is like your own when really mm-hmm. it's not. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, that's you may true. end up building something for a very small market, but I, I do think if you build something for yourself that actually solves a real problem and you end up using it every day, you will have some amount of market. Now, if it turns out that you're a, you know... I don't know, uh, a closure developer and closure <laughs> just never takes off, you may end up in a world where no one uses your stuff, right? How dare you? <laughs> I, I love closure. <laughs> Paul, Paul. Yeah. Yeah, full, 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 full uh, yeah. disclosure, one of Paul's former employees actually taught me closure, and mm. I love it to death. Uh, so I, I owe Paul. He's like my my grandfather of closureness. <laughs> we we just traced the yeah. we traced the lineage of yeah, closure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, did, I didn't realize you knew that. I thought you were just picking a random language. No, I was just speaking of something that's like I love that I don't think anybody uses. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in large numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Like if you go build a closure-based startup today for closure developers, you're probably not going to have a really big oh, market. Right? For closure developers, sure. That, that that that's definitely a mistake. Right. But ones where you want to hire closure developers, it's it's amazing. Oh, out there. Well, that, that's like the closure's like the Python of ten years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So. I mean, you, you said B2B. I would scope it down to, it's certainly true for developer tools. You cannot be successful in the developer market if you're not a developer yourself and if you're not using your developer product. It's just, like even at Microsoft, it doesn't work. Yeah. You, you do see a lot of people who are trying to create these like ways that they view that the world should be. Mm-hmm. And it's like... That, Something where, where, where there isn't like 15 attempts already. It's like, what if we did it like this? And it's like, yeah, I get, I, I, no, no one is interested in, in your worldview. Like everyone is interested in, in solving the problems that they have. That's actually an interesting point that you bring up. Because when I think about dev tools where somebody built it because they had a very strict point of view, I, I go back to Rich Hickey, right? Like there's not just closure, but something like Datomic, mm-hmm. which really represents how he feels about the whole world of immutability and complexing and simplicity sure, and sure, all sure, those sure, kinds sure, of things. Sure, sure. And yes, I mean, you could argue, you know, Rich Hickey's not a billionaire. He doesn't have, you know, one of the, the world's largest companies. But he is seeing success and he is seeing his ideas slowly permeate 
you well, know, the world. He is kind of famous going into that. I think if you weren't Rich Hickey and you were trying to build Atomic, you might you might find yourself in a lot more trouble. That's true, but he's famous because of closure, and I think he's famous because mm. of all these ideas he's yeah, created yeah, 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 building yeah. up to Datomic. So it, it's interesting. The Rich Hickey example is, is is a really good one because it's it's not a worldview that lots of people share. It's it's he's got a real cult yep. around closure and, and and around himself, and you can build stuff from a cult, and it's much more difficult to build things if your sort of following is sort of low level and no no one really cares that much. Yeah. You're much better with love it or hate it. I mean, counter example though, Miguel and Nat. You know, Mono was kind of a cult, right? It was open source C sharp. I mean, if you went back in time and asked somebody from 2006 or so, "Hey, is this going to, you know, work out?" Everybody would have been super skeptical of you, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they've transformed that to now. You know, Miguel is an incredibly influential person in the industry, at least in the you know the Microsoft world, but really in the, in both the Microsoft world and the mobile development world. So you can go from you know, starting a cult to actually starting a larger movement. Well, it's interesting that they had this this value, which was like C-sharp developers need cool tools as well, which, you know, if you ask the, the cool tools portion of the market, they'd be like, nah, fuck C-sharp. Yeah, but it turned out they were wrong. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, 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 that's the conviction that they, that they stuck yes. with. Oh, that, I mean, and that's definitely conviction there. Yeah. The, the irony is kind of like if Microsoft would have, would have won the mobile game, then Mono would have been, wouldn't have been successful, right? Like if Windows Phone would be the biggest player in the market today and iOS and Android would be small, then Mono would, Mono would, be, would yes. not be important. So kind of like they benefited from the failure of Microsoft. <laughs> well, it's, it's just more like... The, the, to get acquired by Microsoft. There was a market condition that, you know, they couldn't control that was perfect for them. Yeah, mm -hmm. like, like so I was at TripIt before. Um, TripIt bet big on iOS. Our rivals bet big on BlackBerry. We became the number one travel app. Yeah, mm. exactly. Mm -hmm. this, you, I think you know, there are very few people who are Elon Musk and can literally invent the industry and move the market. Mm -hmm. And you know, unless you're somebody who literally thinks through force of will, you're just going to shift everybody's perception. I think you're, you're going to sometimes just be really lucky that you... Yeah introduced the right thing at the right time. Well, I think, I think um, so my, my, my advisor, Sean Burns uh, from Flurry, he, he's a great inspiration because he was super early on mobile. Mm -hmm. I yeah. mean, he was doing mobile when nobody else was doing mobile. Except like, Thomas. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, he was doing mobile like 2003. Uh, 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 no, I was actually doing automotive systems in 2003. <laughs> his, his saying is like, sometimes you got to be way out in the water so that when the wave comes you're ready for it. Like, you can't mm -hmm. be sitting yeah. on shore like, hey, this wave is only here. But. And then stick with it, right? I mean, when we started Hockey App in 2010, the only competitor that was out there was Test Flight. Mm -hmm. And along the way, it was always Test Flight versus Hockey App for a long time. And yeah, there were other startups in the space, um, Crashlytics was one and Crash Reporting, for example, that gained also reputation. But really, in the original uh, fight was like Test Flight versus Hockey App. And then they get acquired by, by Apple, we got acquired by Microsoft. So it kind of <laughs> turned out nice for both of us, right? And it's still, like, I don't feel bad about them. And TestFlight is a nice tool, and, and, and we probably book it into Mobile Center pretty soon. Yeah. So, yeah. What, what gave you the conviction to keep going so early? Like, so we, we talked about the being out on the water metaphor, and you laughed, like... Well, I mean, so I was in the automotive industry, so I was working for Daimler and then for Bosch. And I basically um, I became an independent contractor when the iOS SDK came out. I had finished my PhD and I had time. So I, I basically left Bosch and, and became an independent contractor. And then 
I love doing that. Like I love doing mob mobile development. I love going to WWDC, talking with other developers. And then I think you know the the passion for the scene and then also for the customer communication kept us going. And I'm still doing like 20, 30 uh, support threads every day on hockey app support. That's so cool. And it's, it's I, I love doing it. I mean, we love doing it, right? I mean, we wouldn't yeah. do mobile center if we wouldn't love it. And the same was true for hockey app. And as long as you love doing it and, you know, a decent amount of money comes in to, to keep the servers running, right? Why, why stop doing it? I, I love my life uh, as a startup founder. Yeah, I think there's something special about doing startup work for developers uh, when, you have your, when your product is for developers because it's your tribe and it's just, there's a sense of satisfaction. Like you're talking about B2C earlier. Like when I left Microsoft, I did a startup that was, we were trying to build essentially like a, a browser-based OS and all-in-one hardware. So think Chromebook before Chromebook, that, that failed. The next one after that was a, like a mobile-based video, uh, video messaging startup, again, for consumers. That failed. Um, but then when we did, uh, when I joined Standard Treasury, that was like, you know, it was for developers, and it, was a, it felt very different, and it reminded me of my time at Microsoft before, because at Microsoft before, I was in the developer division, I was, you know, building .NET, building C Sharp, all those mm -hmm. kinds of things. And that sense of, I'm building something for someone like me who is yeah. then going to go use it to build something else entirely. You know, I'm oh. building the hammer. I'm building the wrench. That sense of like uh, moving the world, of, of being that pivot point, it's an empowering one. Well, there's, there's concrete feedback that, that you, you build it and, and someone else uses it. And you know, that, that one person who gives you money or who builds on top, of that, that is a concrete feedback point. Yes. Whereas if you're, if you're, when you're building in, in, the, in the B2C world, it's just so hard to get enough people onto the platform to get even one little piece of feedback. Yeah, I mean, I remember when, with the video messaging startup, when we hit like 100,000 monthly active users, I was like, wow, okay, it's good time to go raise some money. And I, wonder, I remember going around to VCs and they were like, oh, yeah, you need at least a million before you talk to us. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> you know, it's funny, it's funny that you mentioned VCs. So we had never any funding. Oh, wow. And so that makes it really easy to keep going, right? Because <laughs> as long as you love what you do and you make enough money to pay salaries and yeah. servers, you just, like the VCs always, you know, when I talk to VCs, they always said, yeah, you have a lifestyle business. Uh, and they made it, meant it in a demeaning way. And we thought, yeah, right. It's a nice lifestyle that you <laughs> yeah. have. And we, like in Germany, there's like what's called, the German word is Mittelstand. And there's companies that do those things for hundreds of years, right? There's a company that's only doing gas station signs and they've been always doing gas station signs and that's kind of like their business and they're, they're, they're the world leader. I have some bad news for them. <laughs> you have some bad news for them? Yeah, like the, the market for gas station signs is not going to last terribly much longer. Well, I mean, the, the Tesla supercharger also needs a sign, right? <laughs> but it's, true, true, it, true. The, the, my point is, you know, if, you, if you're not in the business of getting a quick exit, if you're really building something that has, has a strong foundation mm -hmm. and has a solid fan base, you can go almost forever. Sure, there's... So you know, what, what made you uh, get acquired or, or whatever when, when the time came? So the, the way it started is that literally a, a PM in Microsoft was just looking at available companies uh, in the crash reporting space. They were looking for crash reporting tools. But basically, it was a, a, an what we call it, Microsoft and IC, like an individual contributor, not a manager, not a high rank mm -hmm. person, something like that. And he was just looking at what, what companies are available. And then they contacted us and we didn't even think about acquisition. We just thought, oh, it's Microsoft. They, they want, to do a, want to get a demo and then use us. And we knew that, for example, Skype was using Hockey App since 2011, right? So that was for a long time before we even started acquisition talks. And then it evolved from there and we had like conversations with Microsoft and should we do an SDK for them or 
maybe maybe they want a partnership or something like that. And so the, the discussion evolved and ultimately ended in an acquisition. But it wasn't like we were, we were not chopping around or anything like that. The story is interesting because one of the things I tell startup founders all the time is that uh, you know try to ignore big companies as long as you can. Right. Because what I found is all the time we'll have um, startup founders come by and, and they want to talk to us. We're like, great, come by. And they'll like demo their, their product to us. And I... And I Every time I feel like you know they're they're kind of not spending their time wisely because yeah. the chances that we will go ahead and acquire them or do a partnership that will be actually useful for them yeah. are relatively small, right? And we're like we're we're a shotgun. We're like spraying lots of ideas out there and seeing mm -hmm. which ones are going to be useful for our business goals, right? So you have to like really kind of know when is it really worth talking to this giant company versus, okay, I just need to be heads down and acquire my next, you know, 10 customers. And that's like always like a really tough one for, for people. That's, that, that seems like a really good loop because we started off the um, segment with what's the worst thing about being acquired? <laughs> and now you just advise everybody just to focus on running a business. Yes. Well, thanks so much. We really enjoyed you stopping by today. Hey, guys, it was great. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of CircleCI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Mm -hmm.